Operator, thank you very much. I don't know whether you've, uh, like me, realised that there is a new television channel come under uh, Freeview, a new Christian channel. I'm not into God TV or Genesis or Revelation, I haven't got that facility, but this year, this week, a new Christian channel has started. Uh, I think it's called Trinity Broadcasting on uh, Freeview 65. I dipped into it earlier this week to, just to see what it was like and just sort of touched on it. And uh, on one occasion I touched in, there was an interview taking place between the vice president, the American vice president of the organisation, and a pastor from Hillsong. And uh, the question he asked the pastor from Hillsong is, why haven't we got the messages, Christians, onto the general community out there? And the reply that came back was, we've been trying to pass the message that Christianity is all about changing our behaviour, where really it's all about a relationship with God. And I thought, oh, someone else is saying the same thing. Towards the end of the last year, I suggested to you that relationship with God, loving God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind, was the meaning of life. That was the meaning of life. And there was someone on the television saying the same thing. And I thought, that's encouraging. Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might, is what it's all about. Two weeks ago, Phil mentioned that same verse. He said, if we didn't have any other verse in Scripture, and only that verse, that would suffice. Loving God with all our heart, and with all our soul and understanding. But knowing it, as Phil reminded us, even believing it, we still need to apply it. We may believe that that's true, because it says it in Scripture, but we need to apply it. So I want to look again, we started it towards the end of last year, about what does it mean to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind. I want to continue that theme again today to looking at what does it mean in practice to love God in that way. How many of you have read or heard about Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? One or two? I mean, it's been mentioned here, but uh, if you haven't read it, have you heard about it? You remember Phil's mentioned it, sometimes Lee's mentioned it. We all have one, if not two, five love languages that we can receive and we give love. Now, when I read that book the first time, or Ruth read it, and then she says to me, will you check this out to check it's all right, I thought it was a load of old rubbish. I thought it was a lot of mum. I couldn't understand it. I, I, didn't, I thought it was someone was writing a book in order to get a load of money, sell a load of books and whatnot. Five love languages, I didn't understand it at all. The penny hadn't dropped. It wasn't until some time later that we were, Ruth and I were running a marriage course and we had to go through the, we decided that we needed to go through it a little bit ourselves in order to teach it and to run it. So we went through it and during that process, I had to decide or to, to work out why was it 
how much, why did I appreciate, why did I love Ruth? What was it about Ruth that loved me? And I jotted down a few things, and I didn't think anything more of it. And then towards the end of the course, it said, using that information, determine what your love language was. As you know, suddenly the penny dropped. Suddenly I understood it. Suddenly there was a realisation that it had gone down from my head into my heart, and I suddenly realised it, that there was a love language. And if you speak to me in that particular way, I appreciated that. But if you try to do that in some other way, then I wouldn't appreciate it. I don't experience that love. Now, this is particularly important to you as married couples in some way, because typically, the married couple, the husband thinks that he's showing love by going out and working 14, 15 hours a day, bringing in a whole load of money and buying a load of things to his wife. And his wife is very often has got no interest in that whatsoever. Buying all these things, giving all these expensive gifts and whatnot, she would rather have quality time with him. She would rather that he spent the time that he's at work earning all this money to give her presents that she doesn't want. She would rather experience his love by being there, that physical presence. And so often that happens. The five love languages, loving words, helpful actions, quality time, thoughtful presence, and physical affection. Now, I've, I've started giving people hugs these days, but I, I suddenly realised that sometimes, some of these people you give, you go up to give them a big hug, and they go, they, you know, they run a mile sort of thing. And you've got to realise that some people here, some people I know, that you don't give them physical help sort of thing, you know. I, a, a cousin of Ruth came up yesterday and I was going to give the husband a big hug and I could see that he, he put out his hand sort of thing and that. And, uh, you know, this, and there, are, there are other people, we've got a little group that uh, is here that, that we meet in our home sometimes. There's some people that, you, you know, they, they don't appreciate the physical hug sort of thing. And you've got to be a bit careful. If, if you give me a load of presents, it doesn't mean a lot to me. But some people show their love by giving presents, and that's, how they, that's the way they have. So you've got to learn what is your love language. How do you show love, and how do you receive love? And we'll touch that later on. What I'm talking about is that there has been that mention, and Mark has mentioned it a couple of times, and we're entering a new season in which the penny is going to drop. We've got to change our mindset. You're going to hear a lot about this in the coming year, I'm sure. You're going to hear about changing a mindset that suddenly the penny will drop about things that you've known about for some time. And suddenly you'll say, that's what it's all about. I understand it now. And one of those things that the penny's got to drop on, many of you, is how do you love God? And how does, in particular, how does God want you to show your love to him. And we'll touch on a few of these bits later. There needs to be a paradigm shift in our thinking. Mark shared with us a couple of weeks ago a, a picture about this change of season that we were coming into, saying the leaves were coming off the trees. Do you remember him sharing that? And this was a change of mindset. We've got to get rid of some of our old ideas that we've been thinking and that we've got to have, get rid of the old thinking. We've got to change our mindsets. Scripture, we'll call this, put up Romans uh, 12 and uh, verse 2 
uh, uh, Vince. Scripture calls it renewing our minds. Our spiritual worship to God is all about changing our minds, renewing our minds, so that you will know God's will. And during this season that we're entering into, there's going to be that renewing of our minds, a changing, a paradigm mind shift. We've got to change something about the way we're thinking. Renewing your minds so that you will know the will of God. We started looking at this towards the end of last year. How does it mean? How do we love God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind, our whole being? We touched on a few things. I got so far and then we ran out of time. So I'm going to pick this up again and run with it this morning. Some of you told me that it made an impact. That little bit that I did share with you made a big impact on you. One or two people emailed me and spoke to me afterwards. But it's, it's more than just realising. It's more than just being impacted by it. We need to put these things into practice. We need to have a paradigm mind shift. We looked at last time about us being human beings. I'm not going to go into that all in depth again. We're human beings, not human doers. Oswald Chambers says, beware of anything that competes with our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And the greatest competition, the greatest thing that gets in the way is service. Sometimes what we do gets in the way of us being with him. The things that we do for God can get in the way of us experiencing something of the presence of God. Our ministry gets in the way of the time that we spend with God. The New Living Translation of 1 John 5.21 says this, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. We're human beings, not human doers. We need to be very sure of our Father's will for us so that we don't do things for him which he hasn't asked us to do. We can busy be busy doing things which may well be good and which may well be right, but God hasn't asked us to do it. We'll perhaps touch on that later. It's possible for us to be more interested in what we do for God than who we're doing it for. What are we doing with our time? Are we being with God or are we doing things with its God? It's been said that God has many servants, but few lovers. Are you one of those servants? Or are you a lover of God? I said last time as well that out of our intimacy with God will flow ministry. Let me repeat that. Out of our intimacy will flow our ministry. And many people work for God's attention and favour instead of working for God because of his favour. We don't work to achieve his favour. We've already got his favour. And therefore, what we do is out of that favour, it's out of that relationship, it's out of that ministry, is what we do things for. So we said last time, we're human beings, we're not human doers. Secondly, I mentioned that we are to gaze upon God. Gazing upon God. Just looking upon him, looking at him. In his book, uh, A Passion for Jesus, Mike Bickle writes this, Sanctification 
and transformation comes from beholding, not striving. Sanctification and transformation comes from beholding, not from striving. Scripture tells us, doesn't it, there, that as we gaze upon God, as we look upon him, that we will be changed and transformed. With unveiled faces, we became changed from one degree of glory to another. From gazing, that transformation takes place by looking at God. You remember I said that very often we become like the things that we put our attention on. The more we look upon certain things, the more we become like them. You laughed when I said that many of you, uh, many people become like their pets. They spend so much time looking at their pets, their dogs or their cats, so they suddenly become to grow like a dog or a cat. What we spend our time looking at, we very often become more and more like that. Ruth said to me recently that she suddenly realised that with this sun that's coming through, it was just like the sun that was coming through there. When you look, when you're driving along, when the sun is low on the horizon, you get blinded, don't you, by the, the rays of the sun, and you get the sunlight coming into your eyes. If you're looking at the sun for a long, long time, when you look around and look back at something else, you can't see anything. Anything you want to look at is just blind. You're just blinded by the sun. And that's what, we, that's what we should be doing with God. As we look into him and we see his glory and we see his brilliance, then all the other things that we're worried about, all our troubles, all our difficulties, turn into nothing. I have a man that comes to see me from time to time. He's been coming for years. For, he just likes me to pray for him. I don't understand why. But he likes to come. He comes with all his problems. And I, say to him, I said to him recently, I said, why are you telling God that you've got all these big problems. Why don't you tell the problems that you've got a big God? When you look at the sunshine, you can't see anything else. All the problems disappear. Don't they? I mean, it's just blazing. You just can't see anything else when you're looking into the sun. And that's what happens as we gaze upon God. All these big problems just sort of disappear. They become into perspective. If God is not our primary focus, then everything else gets out of focus. We've got to focus upon God. We've got to look to God. We've got to gaze upon God. I just shared with you a couple of verses as well from uh, uh, the Song of Solomon's. I just hope that Joel might have been here because he came up to me afterwards and said, when you said these verses... um, I, I felt I needed to write a song, so I don't know whether he's written a song about these from the Song of Solomons, but the Song of Solomons we read, I don't know whether it'll come up, uh, no, don't put it up, Vince, on this one, because the Revised Standard Version is, uh, is uh, a, a bit better. It says um, in uh, Song of Solomons 4 verse 9, you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. This is what God says. The Revised Standard Version says, you have ravished my heart just by glancing at me. This is what happens when we glance at God. This is how he feels. This is how he reacts. If one glance of looking at God will do that to God, how do you think gazing upon him will do? He will just be blown away as we look upon him. He will just go, I don't know what will happen to him, but if a glance can ravish his heart, what will will gazing do to him? 
And later on it goes on to say in uh, 6 verse 4, it says, Turn your eyes from me. You overwhelm me. God is overwhelmed by us looking at him. Can you believe it? Can you believe that God gets overwhelmed? He gets all in pieces. And I just almost, I don't know what to do. You're looking at me. You're gazing upon me. This is what God, this is what happens when we gaze upon God. So gazing upon God is just brilliant. The almighty God of heaven is overcome by our gazing upon him. Thirdly, we need a, I suggest that we need a passionate longing for the presence of God. Do you know how the songs have changed over this year? Has the penny dropped? We've all been talking about his presence. It's your presence, Lord, I need. Nothing but your presence. Nothing but you. Your presence is heaven to me. It's all about your presence. We've been seeing that over this last year so many times. A passionate presence for God. We've been saved primarily that we might passionately love a person. We've redeemed to serve a person. And not, we've, we've been redeemed to be that relationship, really, with a person and not perform a ministry. And if we're out of touch with those deep longings within our hearts, we're missing something. There is a thirst, a longing, a drive within inside of us for something or other, a passionate relationship with Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we're not in touch with those deep longings within our beings, then we'll be caught up in other things. We'll be caught up in service, in doing things, in duties, which might well be all very right, but we're missing on the right thing. We might be tithing, we might be doing prayer times, we might be doing Bible studies, etc. But we need that passionate relationship with God. That's what's driving us. That's what's deep within inside us. We'll be so tied up with the, the ritual, we'll be so tied up with the principles of ministry that we'll miss the very person. We're not driven by purpose. I, I hate that title of a purpose-driven church. I want us to be a present-filled church, a present-based church, a church that's filled with the presence of God, and that's the what drives us and motivates us and keeps us going. We need a passion for Christ. The psalmist talks about it in terms of a deep thirst and a deep hunger for God. He felt it really, he said, my thirst, I'm thirsting, I'm longing, I'm desperate, I'm hungry for you. It was overwhelming to the, to the uh, psalmist. And many of us don't get in touch with that burning passion that's in our hearts. We don't get in touch with it. We divert it something else. But it's a desperation for God. God has built into us something and planted inside us a desperation for him. And if we don't get it in one way, we'll get it in another We'll look for it to be satisfied by some other means, and we won't do it that way. He, David talks about the dryness of the desert. And so often that dryness drives us towards God, seeking God with a holy desperation in order to satisfy that which has been planted within us. Paul was to talk about it later and put it in a different way. He says, the love of God compels me it drives me. It fires me. It galvanizes me. Does the love of God do that to you? It did it for Paul. It means sometimes that some of the less important things need to be left to one side in order to cultivate 
that relationship with God. We need to put aside some other things that we might develop a passion for Christ, a consuming, controlling passion that eclipses everything else. Jeremiah said this, remember that in Jeremiah 29, if you look for me wholehearted me, you will find me. It's that wholehearted seeking after God that's important. Seeking God for who he is, not for what he does. You will seek me when you find me, when you seek, with, seek me with all of your heart. And God will test us in that. God will test us. Do you really want me? Then you've really got to seek me. You've got to search for me. You've got to be passionate to look eagerly for me. We've got to be like that uh, uh, woman uh, who will get out of the routine and will get into God and get close to Jesus. She set up a, an ambush for him. The bleeding woman. You remember the, the woman who had the, the, the bleeding inside her? She, she made sure she, she, she got God. She set an ambush up to make sure she caught him. We've got to do that. We've got to do that. The church at Ephesus in, Rome, in Revelation had lost its first love. It lost its passion for Christ. That which was passionate by nature had dominated everything else. It had lost it. And God condemned it for its loss of its, of its passion. It wasn't that they didn't love God. They just didn't love God enough and not maintained that passion, that sharp age that they had originally. And they were told that if they didn't correct it, God would remove the lamp of their understanding. We've got to change our minds. We've got to change our mindsets again that we passionately love God and go for it. And then we will have that light for further revelation. If the lampstand was removed, that light of understanding and revelation would be removed as well. It's the lack of passionate love of God and the lukewarmness of so many in the church that's the greatest enemy of uh, the Christian church today. A passionate longing for God. Fourthly, if I've got the numbers right, knowing God, knowing God. To us in the Western world, knowing is, is all about information. We accumulate a lot of information. Principles, concepts. But biblical times, knowledge was all about a relationship with people. It was about personal relationship. In order to know someone, you enter into a close personal relationship. Now, you may feel that you know all these celebrities that are on TV and are around, but you don't really know them at all. Hardly any of them, I would suggest, that you know. To establish a relationship with God, we must get to know him personally, not just know about him. Knowing God is more than just knowing facts and figures and information. It's not having a knowledge of the Bible. It's that personal relationship with God. It transcends discussions about the nature and character of God. Isaiah told the people at the time, that they would be sent into exile because they did not know or understand God. And this 
lack of knowledge was the cause of them going into exile. Do we really know God? It's entering into a personal relationship with him. It means identifying with God. It becomes, means part of being with God in some way. To view God from everything's point of view. We get God's sense of perspective on things. An intimate personal relationship with God is characterized by complete trust and integrity. It transforms our thoughts. It transforms our thinking. It transforms our action, our priorities. It changes everything. It sets our values in a different way. Our relationship with other people. It's more important than religious rites and ritual and doing a whole load of things. Sacrifices and burnt offerings, God says, doesn't mean anything. I'm fed up with your sacrifices. I'm fed up with your offerings, God says to the people of old. I'm fed up with it. I want to know you. I want to know you more than I want your offerings. Hosea 6 verse 6 says. Sacrifice still is its place, yes. But only when it's offered by people who really know and trust God. Christianity is not a religion. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. A personal relationship with the only true and living God. And that's why we have communion. Communion is, do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember him. Our relationship is critical. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Are we ashamed of Jesus? We may know a lot about him, but do we really know him in an intimate way? It's not what we do. It's not the actions that we take. We may do a lot of things, Jesus said to the, the people. You may be doing a lot of things, but I never know you. I never knew you. He knew all about them, but he didn't really have that experience, knowledge of them. That's what he was saying. Jesus may know and have a lot of information about us, but if there's no close relationship with him, then he doesn't really know us. But Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, and the sheep know his voice. They know him. And the good shepherd knows his sheep, and the sheep know him. Let me ask you, would you rather be known as a lover of God than a doer of God? As you see, the point is not the activity. It's not what we do. The point is the intimacy. Jesus is looking for intimacy with us, not looking for us to do things. The issue that matters to God is not how much we know him, but how much we love him. It's not how much we know him, it's about how much we love him. When the disciples, after the resurrection, it wasn't their knowledge of scripture that caused them to, to, to really feel good, really grasp what was going on. It was their knowledge and relationship, the fact that God was with them again. And Jesus, when he spoke to Peter, you remember that time at the, at the Sea of Galilee? He wanted Peter to grasp that love 
Peter's love for him. And it was out of that, that sense of, do you love me? There was the question. Do you love me? Do you love me? He kept repeating it. And then he said, out of that love, go and feed my sheep. The love came before the doing. The love came before the action. That's what he was trying to remind Peter about the, the sense of God's love for him, knowing God. It's an ongoing knowledge as well. Jesus spoke about eternal life being knowing God. Remember that in the great priestly prayer that he said in uh, Romans, not Romans, John 17. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was that they might know God better. For the Colossians, it was that they would be growing in the knowledge of God. And there's a need for a relationship with God which is ongoing. It's a developing thing. It's not a stagnant thing. It's not a one-off thing at all. It's not just something which is current. It's not something which is just based on the past. But there's that ongoing relationship, an ongoing intimacy with God. It's not something based in the past. When writing to the Philippians, Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge and greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It was that important to him. Everything else could be completely wasted. But to know God was so important compared with everything else. God does as he pleases. God will do what he wants. And sometimes what he does causes us confusion. He acts outside our understanding. He does things which we don't really follow or understand. So often his actions may appear to be contradictory, which leads us to an uncomfortable tension between us and God because we don't understand what he's doing and we've got to live in that tension so often. God is so foreign to our natural ways of thinking that we can only understand him through relationship. Once you get to know someone then you can get a better understanding of their actions and what they do and what they say. Because you know them and you understand them better. And that's the same thing with, with God. We can get confused by his actions and what he says and does, but when we get to know him, we can say, ah, that's what you mean. The penny drops, as it were. We understand that paradigm shift in our thinking takes place. Scripture reveals that God and his greatness, God, Scripture reveals God and his greatness, but God is bigger than his book. God is bigger than the, what is there within the pages of Scripture. We follow one who changes not, but who is always changing. He promises to do a new thing. He says, I'm doing a new thing. This is this new season that we've been hearing about. <clears throat> You'll hear more about that as well. We're entering into a new season. God is doing a new thing. But we need to know God in order to know what he's doing. Waiting in his presence. Waiting in his presence. The dwelling place of God. Cafe Rendezvous. Sunday evenings. The dwelling place of God. We spend time in his presence you know remember Jacob had a dream 
he declared afterwards, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And sometimes we know God is in the place, but we don't know it. Why is it that sometimes some people can see and have a revelation of God that it suddenly changes their whole life and other people are completely untouched by it? Sometimes God is in this place and we don't know it. What happens to one person doesn't happen to another. They don't know it. Why? The penny hasn't dropped. We've got to get that timing right to allow the penny to drop, to go from our heads to our hearts. Waiting in the presence of God. One person can be experience God's presence and be changed forever. But others never realized he was there. Didn't recognize the presence of God at all. Although scripture says the Lord is here. He's at hand, he's near, he's within our reach. He's there, he's touchable, he's tangible. He's not far from any one of us. But some of us don't recognize it. And the question is, how much intimacy do we want compared to the intimacy that Christ wants? God wants our presence. God wants our presence. The psalmist says again, be still and know that I am God. And in the busyness of life in the Western world, how often can we be still? How often can we be still? We want to fill it in with something. We want to fill it in with... Can you sit down and do nothing, as it were? I mean, did some of you do this over Christmas and New Year? You just sort of sat down and didn't... Most people need to be doing something, or they need to have the radio on, or they need to be looking at their phones or getting the text messages. You've got to be doing something, but to be still. Gosh, that's difficult, isn't it? One or two people are laughing. They know that they have difficulty being still and being with him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 37, verse 7. Just, <clears throat> Vince, put this up. This, this is very interesting. Waiting before the Lord is not a passive thing. Can you, can you, you need to grasp this. Waiting before the God is not a passive thing. It's not sitting around and doing nothing and just waiting that something will happen. The, the, the Hebrew word for wait patiently can be translated as dancing and swirling around. Does that sound wait patiently to you? It's, it's, an, it's an active. There's an activeness in this waiting patiently for God. It can be dancing and swirling around. It's not a passive expansion, but one of focus and passion. If you look in, in verse 9 of the same psalm, the word is translated wait and hope and look for in the Amplified Version. To wait and hope and look for. There's a, there's a, 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 it's not a passive, it's, it's an action word, if you see what I mean. I think, I don't know whether it's this one or another translation, to lie in wait for. The word is like an ambush. We, we mentioned that earlier before when, we, when the woman with the bleeding ambushed Jesus. 
We, we, there is a, this waiting upon God is an, is an active thing, not a passive thing. Waiting in his presence is to eagerly pursue him, to ambush him like a military attack in some way. It's not sitting around waiting for something to happen. It's doing something about it. <clears throat> Intimacy with God takes time, and there's no substitute for waiting in his presence. It's in God's presence that he reveals his heart. Someone said, we need to spend time alone with the one on the throne. We need to spend time alone with the one on the throne. When did you last spend real time with the one on the throne? Waiting in God's presence. Some people highly value the presence of God and others don't. The ones who enjoy fellowship throughout their day with the Holy Spirit are extremely aware of how he feels about their words, their actions, their activities, and everything else. They're really God-conscious in all of this. Let me ask you, this is not an irrelevant question, Thinking in terms of those five love languages, what do you think is God's love language? How do you think that he received... What would you say was God's love language? I'll repeat them again so you can think about it. <clears throat> Loving words, helpful actions, quality time, Thoughtful presence, physical affection. Just think about it for a minute. What do you think is God's love language? How does God want us to love him? Can I suggest to you that God's love language is quality time? Does that make sense? Right at the very beginning, God loved to spend time with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He went out looking for them, and they hid away from him during the fall. He must have been devastated that they didn't want to be with him. Jesus told his disciples, he says, I want you to be with me. Come and follow me. I, I want you to be with me where I am. Right at the very end, he says, um, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you always. It, the whole thrust of him, when he called the, one of the disciples that very early on, he said, you know, they said to him, where are you staying? He said, come and be with me. He called the disciples, if you look in scripture, it says he called the disciples to be with him. So I would suggest to you that one of the key love languages or if not the key love language of God, Jesus, is to people to be with him. The presence. Have you ever thought about that? The way that Jesus, the way that God wants us to love him, and the way that he, his love language, is his presence. 
He wanted his presence. He wanted that presence. It's quality time, I would suggest. The other thing would be loving words. He likes us to declare our love for him. We lo- he loves to declare that we love him. He loves to hear us saying how much we love him and expressing our love for him. And that, that, those quality words, how much we delight him. So, quality time and love. You see that in uh, Mary and Martha. We've had this a couple of times. Mary and Martha. Martha was the one that was busy in the kitchen. Mary was the one that sat at his feet. She just said, Jesus said to him, she's doing the best thing. Now, some of us would much prefer a meal than someone sitting around and doing nothing. But Jesus said, the best thing that's, that's happening is Mary sitting in my presence at my feet. Martha, you might be doing a good job there in the kitchen, but the best thing is being with me, Mary and Martha. Martha had proximity, but she missed the intimacy. She was distracted. She was too busy to spend time with him. She wasn't sinning. She, she was doing constructive work. But the best thing was to be with Jesus, waiting in his presence. And sometimes we might be like Martha. We might be cooking a meal that Jesus hasn't asked for. We might be doing things for God and he doesn't want us to do them. He wants us to be in his presence. At times we may worry about whether or not we sense the presence of God. But have you thought, does God sense our presence? Are you like me? I can be there watching a football match or a rugby match on the television. I can remember this. Ruth will verify this. I I get so engrossed with the football or the rugby or the sport that the kids are having a fight around me and I'm completely oblivious to it. I, I mean, I'm there, and Ruth's there, and the children are there, but I'm not present with them, you see. I'm, I'm somewhere else, and maybe you, you're with that. You're, you sit in a church service, but your presence is not... You're somewhere else. You're not in present contact with God. You're oblivious to what's going on. You're engrossed with something else. And you can be there, but not there. You know, they say you're not there. Things go on and conversations take place in our home when I'm involved with the television and that in the sport. I don't hear anything. I'm not there. Mary sat at Jesus' feet. This was a technical expression of someone who sat at the feet of a rabbi, a relationship between a disciple and a rabbi. It was signified a, a choice. I want to find out everything there is about this rabbi. I want to emulate everything about the rabbi. I want to do everything he does. They used to spy on the rabbi and and keep an eye on him and see what he did when he went to the toilet, when he went to the bed. They did everything to copy the rabbi. It was being close. And many Christians spend all their lives mastering all sorts of principles. They've done what they felt was their Christian duty They completed all the programs of their church and they've never known intimacy with God. Never known that heart-to-heart intimacy with Christ, the God whom they seek to follow. Many of us are like that. We're ignorant of the one 
that we choose to follow. We don't really know about God at all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. It's a choice. We've got to make that choice to do that. We've got to choose to love God. And Mary was acting with extravagance and abandon and devotion. And God is attracted to those sorts of people. He's attracted to those people who've got a tenacity to passion, to chase after him, to do what needs to be done. We need to have a passion for his presence. But Martha complained. Remember? She complained about her sister. She said, Mary was wasting time. I mean, I mean, some of us would say the same thing. Why are you spending all that time waiting with God when you could be doing this? There's a lot of work, there's a lot of things to be done, but you spend all your time just waiting in God's presence. It's a complete waste of time. I wonder whether some of you think what we do on a Sunday night is a waste of time. We, we're just down at the we're just down at the centre, we're down at the dwelling place and we're just spending time, an hour or two in God's presence. We just, they say, what, what a waste of time, you could be doing this and you could be doing that and there's this ministry and this work, you could be doing, and we're just sitting in God's presence. We're telling them how much we love him. Is it a waste of time? Does, does God think it's a waste of time? It was the same Mary that uh, anointed Jesus' feet. And you remember what the uh, disciples and the the Pharisees said? What a waste! That's what they do when they complain about people. People complain uh, about those who wait upon the Lord. They say it's a waste of time. They said it was a waste. Martha said her sister was wasting time. The disciples and the Pharisees said, what a waste of money with all this anointment. You could have sold it and made a lot of money. And you could have given it to the poor. And you could have been doing this and you could be doing that. And you've wasted it. You've wasted it by pouring out on Jesus' feet. What a waste! Waiting upon God. Many people feel that waiting upon God is a waste. The religious leaders were mainly concerned about maintaining their traditions and appearances. And the disciples were mainly concerned about their ministry to man. But Mary was concerned about her worship for Jesus. It wasn't a waste as far as she was concerned. And for anybody who really loves God, there is nothing more productive or necessary than spending time with Jesus. Just spend time with him. I, I, I was at a conference one, one time and, uh, and uh, the person said, well, just, God wants to say something to you. Just spend time and then share what God's said to you. And, and I just waited upon God and said, Jesus, what do you, what do you want to say to me? Uh, I've got something to say to you. You know, that's where you start. And God said to me, he said, Dave, he said, I really love hanging around with you. When can we meet and have a coffee somewhere? I mean, will God say the same to you? Does he love hanging around with you? Does he love being with you? I mean, that's what he said to me. I really love hanging around with you, Dave. When can we meet up and have a coffee together? Amazing. For anyone who loves God, there's nothing more productive or necessary than spending time with Jesus. 
With deep insight and understanding, Jesus quickly distinguished between what we might call the urgent and the important. He said Mary was doing the better thing, and that was engaging with him, rather than doing something for him. Mary was only doing what her master Jesus did. He concentrated and focused upon what God was saying, the Father was saying, and what God was saying and doing. Focused upon that. Mary did the same. She focused upon Jesus. When Jesus was talking, Mary set aside all the distractions. She was like me in front of the television. She was focused upon, focused upon Jesus. And Christians, you know, we've got a tendency to demonstrate, we continually demonstrate this consistent tendency to put anything that's good ahead of loving God. And the good things become the enemy of the best. God wants the best for us. And we need to be like Mary in the living room and not Martha in the kitchen. We've got enough Marthas in the kitchen. We need Marys in the living room. By the things have gone quickly. Let me just, just touch on two, two things uh, briefly. Uh, one of those things I think is that we need to have in closing, uh, and I'll try and do this uh, as briefly as I can, is that we need to be linked or yoked together with God. Yoked together with God. Side by side with God. We need to walk with God side by side. If we go a different way from God, then if that yoke, if you think of it in terms of the bullocks with the yokes, a double one with, with uh, the heads in there, if you go one way and Jesus is going the other way, you pull against it and uh, that hurts and uh, you'll find that difficult to, to go along with. So we need to walk with God. If we do try away from, pull away from Jesus, we'll only hurt ourselves but also Jesus. We need to go together and yoke together. He says, take my yoke upon you and you will have that rest. We need to keep close to God. Without his constant presence, we will go astray. We'll not be able to make it. Remember Moses said to the children, to, to God, he said, if your presence doesn't come with me, God, if your presence is with us, then we're not going to go anywhere. We need to be close and walking with God. And sometimes God wants us to have fellowship with us right in the very presence of the devil. There's a strength in that place of intimacy with him that other things don't matter at all. By coming to Jesus, the weary and the burdened find their rest. There's a sense of rest in going with Jesus and walking with him. After Jesus died, the disciples were devastated. But their faith and hope can change completely when Jesus came to them again, when he walked with them again. And let me suggest to you in closing that the other thing is that God is looking for people after his own heart. A man or a woman after his own heart. It's interesting this. Moses encouraged the children of Israel to walk after God and God asked Abraham to walk before him, but only Enoch and Noah walked with God. Interesting. Enoch was 
they, all the other people, all those old prophets and whatnot, before they said they lived for so many years and then they died. Enoch lived all these years, but he walked with God and then he died. He was known for someone that walked with God. Do we walk after God? Behind him? Do we walk before God? Or do we walk with God? To walk after God implies a willingness to follow him in all the way he leads. And, and to walk before him suggests a consciousness of his abidance presence. But to walk with God is to be constantly at his side. Are we walking side by side with God? Do we get too far ahead or too far behind? We want that closest possible communion with him. And you know the only time that this phrase of walking with God applies in the Old Testament is in Malachi, when it's applied to the the priests who had a close relationship with God. It didn't apply to all the rest of the people. It applied to those who had a close relationship with God. I think of David and uh, King David and Saul. Do you look at scripture sometimes and say, why God do you do that? Now Saul disobeyed God. I look at this sometimes and said, he only did it in a, a little thing. It was, it was a bit bad, but David was terrible. He adultery and he killed people and whatnot, and yet God said, he's a man after my own heart. Saul did something wrong, he did something religious, he made sacrifices, and yet God says, you're it. That's it. Why did God punish Saul in such a big way, and yet David seemed to be let off the hook, as it were? But God revealed to me that God, that, that uh, David was, also, was really a man after God's heart. He was not with God all the time. He was close to God, but he was always behind God. And as a result, he failed many times. But when he did fail, he confessed to it. He put up his hands and said, that's it, you know, that's me. And he, 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 he repented, we would, we would say. Whereas Saul said, no, no, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. It was really, I was doing a good thing, and it was all right, and it was really proper, and it wasn't my fault at all. Saul made excuses and got punished. David might have done some terrible things, but at least he put up his hand and confessed it. He was a man after God. Saul would commit a sin and then refuse to admit it before God. Even when he was confronted by the prophet uh, Samuel, Saul sought to com- consummate his own righteousness and accomplishment by erecting a monument to himself. He exercised obedience for religious rites, taking more delight in religion and what he was doing than obeying the voice of God. He was not a man after God's own heart. He was more concerned with what the people thought about him. When it comes to pleasing God and displeasing people, David, King David, chose to please God. However, it was a problem that he not only followed after his own heart, uh, God's heart, he also followed after his own heart. And that's what comes with uh, people who follow after their own heart. David was a man who wanted to please God, but sometimes his own heart could deceive him into doing things that would displease God. And when you try to please other people, 
in addition to pleasing God, there will always be a clash between the two. God is looking for men with God's heart. It's not a change of heart that's important, but an exchange of heart. God is looking for people with an undivided heart into whom he can place a new spirit. These are men who walk with God and do not look back, seeking to please God than to please themselves or to other people. These are men like Enoch, who was commended because he was one who pleased God. God was, Saul was good, David was better, but Enoch was the man who was the best. He was the man with God. He was the man who walked God with God. So let's think about this in this coming year. Let's start looking at uh, what it may entail to love God with all our heart and with all our strength and with all our mind. Prayer is a part of that as well. Communication. Communication within a marriage is the key, one of the key factors. When we do uh, marriage counselling or when we do preparation for marriage, it's the first thing. Communication between couples is the wor- one of the things, the biggest problem in a marriage. And our communication with God can be the biggest thing that stops us in our relationship with God because we're not communicating with him. So prayer is another thing. How do we love God? How does God want us to love him? Will the penny drop in the coming year? And we realize how God wants to, us to love him and enter into that to apply it. We are human beings, not human doers. We need to be gazing upon God. We need a passionate longing for his presence. We need to know God. The Greek word for know is intimacy. Mary did not know Joseph. Adam knew Eve and a baby resulted. Life comes through intimacy. Where there's no intimacy, there's no life. Intimacy, waiting, knowing, knowing God in that way, intimacy with God. Waiting, spending time in his presence, waiting in God's presence. Come down tonight to the dwelling place, wait, spend some time waiting in God's presence. Prayer, talk to God, communicate with God, share time with God. We could, we could say a lot about that. Yoke together with him and being a man or a woman after God's heart. Let's be a people that during this year that we come to know and to love God and we love him with our whole heart, body, mind, soul, spirit, strength, might, everything. Let's love God as he wants us to love him in the coming year. Bless you.